This message was presented at the DYC 2013 conference, Before Man and Angels, in Orlando, Florida. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.dycweb.org. Father in heaven, it is a privilege for us to be here, to be able to open your word and to study it with a whole bunch of other people. And we simply ask that you will give us an understanding of your word and these kingdoms and their characteristics. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like you to open your Bibles with me to Luke, the second chapter. Luke chapter 2, and we are going to begin reading in verse 1. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, the third book of the New Testament. Luke, the second chapter, we will begin reading in verse 1. Luke chapter 2 and verse 1. I'm very thrilled that you are here this morning. Did you enjoy your breakfast? Yes, breakfast was good. What did we have this morning? Yes, tofu and potatoes. You know, the flavoring on that tofu was pretty good. It's pretty good texture, but the flavor was pretty good. If you want good food, where do you have to go to get good food? My wife, that's right. The Bible reads in Luke, the second chapter, in the first verse. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from who? Caesar Augustus, that all the world should be taxed or registered. Who was it that sent out this decree to register or to tax the entire world? Caesar Augustus was a ruler for what empire? The Roman Empire. How do we know this? You just have to get out your Strong's Concordance. Look up the word Caesar in your Strong's Concordance and it will tell you a Roman emperor. I want to tell you just a little bit about Caesar Augustus. So if you'll just look on the screen here. Caesar Augustus was the emperor at the birth of Christ. A first century Roman citizen would have thought of this when he or she heard of the quote, Savior of the world. The Caesar's Augustus' full name was Imperator Caesar Divi Filius Augustus, and that's in my best southern accent. And the first part of his name was Imperator, and that was the head of state and the supreme commander in the Roman Empire, in whose name all victories were won. Imperator. Now that should... Uh, that should jog your memory a little bit. His adoptive father, Julius Caesar, was deified. He was made to be a god uh, in the Roman world on January 1 of B.C. 42. After which, Caesar Augustus adopted the title Divi Filius, which means son of the divine. So here you have with Caesar Augustus, you have a man in whose name all victories were won. You have a man who carries the title son of the divine or son of God. As Caesar Augustus traveled throughout his empire, his arrival was heralded by a choir. Pretty interesting, isn't it? Caesar Augustus had through war and conflict brought peace to the Roman world and was thus known as the Prince of what? The Prince of Peace. During his reign, Caesar Augustus oversaw the construction of 53,000 miles of road, all of which led where? All of which led to Rome. This is the world that our Savior, Jesus Christ, is born into. A world that already has a Savior, a world that already has a Prince of Peace, a world that already has one who has given a multiplicity of avenues to get to where God is, because you know Caesar Augustus, of course, was known as the Son of God. You know, they went so far as to celebrate the birth of Caesar Augustus as the birthday of the Savior. Quite interesting that this is the world that Jesus finds himself as a baby being born into. What we are going to do now is we are going to look at each one of the characteristics from these ancient kingdoms, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, and we are going to discover, yes, it's blank, isn't it? And we are going to discover that Satan had a 600-year plan 
Can anybody tell me where in Scripture the arrival of the Messiah is prophesied about? Okay, Hosea, anywhere else? Micah, somebody else? Zechariah, anybody else? I'm looking for an apocalyptic title to a book. Daniel chapter 9 gave a prophecy that Messiah was going to come at a specific time. Do you think that, that Satan was aware of this prophecy? Of course he was aware of it. So from the moment that that prophecy is given, Satan begins his plan to set up a false god, a false law, a false system of religion, so that when Jesus gets there, it's not easy to tell who is the true and who is the false. And so here we go. Babylon, you remember we discussed Babylon. That was Daniel chapter 3 and Daniel chapter 6. And in that presentation, we discovered that uh, Babylon tried to force, and so did Medo-Persia, by the way, tried to force God's people to worship an image. That's Daniel chapter 3. Do you remember this in Daniel chapter 3? The Medo-Persian Empire, we discussed an infallible law, a law that could not be changed. We used Daniel 6 and a little bit of Esther to show that. In the kingdom of Greece, we brought out the characteristic that Greece had a multiplicity of gods. There were numerous ways that you could be saved and numerous gods that were willing to save you if you could appease them enough. And then when we talked about Rome yesterday, yesterday afternoon in our last session, we saw that Rome persecuted God's people, not the least of which was the last living disciple, and his name was what? His name was John, that's right. Satan had been planning for approximately 600 years to thwart the first coming of Jesus. Let's see how this works with the characteristics that we found in these world empires. In Babylon, you had this forced obedience. We saw that in Daniel 3 and 6. Satan set up a system of forced obedience. God's system of obedience is based on what? Love. God thwarted this forced obedience characteristic when Christ was born where? In Bethlehem. By the way, whose decree was it that took Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem? Caesar Augustus, the very one that Satan had set up to be the Savior of the world, gives this command that brings the Savior of the world to Bethlehem to be born. Now let's open our Bibles and let's find this Jesus. Turn with me to, we're reading Luke chapter 2, let's just continue reading a little bit more. Luke chapter 2 and verse 1. One. Luke chapter 2 verse 1 says, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. What Satan thought was the greatest plan on earth to force people to obey a pagan government is exactly what God used in order to get Jesus' mother to Bethlehem so that Jesus could be born according to the prophecy in Micah chapter 5 verse 2. This is how Paul could say that all all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to His purpose. You would think to yourself, here is Mary. This dear lady was nine months pregnant. And she rides a donkey some 80, approximately 80 miles. It takes them, walking at three miles an hour, it would take them about three days to get there. Three days! I don't know how many of you have been pregnant. I've never been pregnant. Praise the Lord. My wife has been pregnant, though. And, you know, even riding in a car is uncomfortable, I understand. I know nothing of this other than what she has shared with me. And she tells me the truth, so I believe that it was uncomfortable. But God uses this system that was, uh, and not that God needed Satan to do this, but Satan had set up this government that you had to obey whether you liked it or not. And so when they are told that they need to go register or to be taxed in Bethlehem, guess where they go? They go to Bethlehem. So what Satan thought to use to thwart the kingdom of God, God actually said, all right, that's the way it is, let's use it. 
and Jesus gets to the right place. God's system of obedience is not forced obedience. It is obedience that is mandated by love. Go with me to John chapter 14 and verse 15. Many of you could quote this one. John chapter 14, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you're turning to the right from where you were. John chapter 14 and verse 15. The Bible says, Jesus speaking in John chapter 14 and verse 15, Jesus says, if you what? If you love me, then do what? Keep my commandments. Go with me to the commandments. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 20. This is not on the screen, so it will not be in the notes that are emailed to you. By the way, I am going to email you a link to the notes, and then you can download those from our Dropbox. So Exodus chapter 20, and we are going to read verse... Well, no, let's start at the beginning. Verse 1. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 reads, And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt. You remember when we studied that, our very first presentation? God brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Verse 4. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them for I the Lord thy God am a what? Am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me and showing mercy unto thousands of them that do what? That love me and then do what? Keep my commandments. My friends, don't miss this point. It is not until after God saved Israel that He gives them by proclamation from Mount Sinai His law, writes it in tables of stone. By the way, what did He write it with? His finger. Did you know if you compare two verses in the New Testament, you will discover that the finger of God is the Spirit of God? Do your own study on that. It is absolutely amazing. Because the very God that could write His law in stone can write His law in your heart today. Don't think for a moment you have gone beyond the compassion of God because God can write in stone and He can certainly write on your heart. This God delivers them from Egypt and then He says in Exodus chapter 20, because I have saved you, because I have brought you out of Egypt and out of bondage, now I want you, because of your love for me, to serve and obey me. This is not forced obedience. This is obedience that is compelled by our love for the Redeemer. This is the love and the service that Jesus wants. If you love me, keep my commandments. Isn't that very cool? Very cool. So, let's go now to Medo-Persia. Medo-Persia, in Medo-Persia, we discussed the infallible nature of the law in Daniel chapter 6. When the Medo-Persian Empire passed a law, that law could not be changed. You remember this, right? Quite interesting. Satan had worked to ensure that there was a pagan government that would use infallibility to establish rule and law that would result in forced obedience. So what Satan thought would be uh, contrary to God's plan, God showed us the infallibility of His law, not with forced obedience, but with the death of His Son, Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 and 18. I'm going to show you the only infallible law ever. Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 and 18. Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, He says, Think not, Matthew 5, 17, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets, for I am not come to destroy, but to what? To what? Did Jesus come to destroy the law? Did He come to destroy the prophets? That means that God's law will last how long? That means that God's law is what? Infallible. Jesus comes to establish a law of infallibility. And that is the law that God says you will keep if you simply love me because I saved you. Continuing on here, verse 18, he says, For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. I need four volunteers. Four volunteers very quickly. Just, Melanie, were you raising your hand? You volunteered? Did you? That's the first time ever. 
So I need three more volunteers. That's... I need three more volunteers. Oh, here's Deborah. Okay, and what is your name? Shauna. Shauna, and one more. All right, and your name? Tosin. All right, so uh, if you wouldn't mind standing over there with them, I'm going to give you ladies some titles, and I'm sorry especially for one of the titles that I have to give to one of you. Uh, oh, okay, then you need to switch places. Yeah, well, you need to switch places with Deborah. Okay, you are going to represent Jesus. Who is she? Jesus. You are going to represent grace. Grace. You are going to represent sin. She's not really that bad. And you are going to represent the law. Satan, the Bible says in Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, and he shall think to change times and laws. Whose times and whose laws is Satan concerned about changing? God's. Now, I study the Bible with people probably 26, 28 hours a week of just studying the Bible with individuals, and I hear over and over again that the law of God has been done away with. Have you ever heard that? Now, this is the only infallible law that Jesus says will never pass away. One jot or one tittle will never, never go away. That's actually what uh, the psalmist based Psalm 119 on as well. And so, law, we need you to turn around. You do not exist anymore. The law has been what? Done away with. Now, the Bible says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, that sin is the transgression of the what? What does transgression mean? To break, to disregard. If you have a newer translation, New King James Version will say that sin is lawlessness. Living your life without regard to the law of God, which basically means that you really don't love God, by the way. And so, since we have no law, but there are two other definitions of... Say again. Oh, you are right on target here, Tanya, but I'm not ready to go there. You, you are good. This is, if, if you can teach when you share the Bible with people, if you can teach in a way that leads them to your next point, they're just like, oh, it's good stuff. That's the way you want to teach the Bible. So there are two other definitions of sin in, that I'm aware of in Scripture. Do you know what they are? That's right. That is, I believe, James 4, 17. Therefore, if any man know to do good and doeth it not, to him it is what? It is sin. Have you ever been in a situation where you're sitting maybe at home and your mom is coming in with the groceries and you're just still sitting there on your iPad or something and you're thinking to yourself, oh man, I should get up and go help? Knowing to do good and doing it not is sin. Then the Bible says there's a third definition. Do you know where that's found or what that third definition is? Romans 14, 23 says, whatsoever is not of faith is what? Sin. So, we've done away with the law. Sin is the transgression of the law. Since there is no law, we do not have what? Sin. Praise the Lord. Get away from us, you know, just for a minute, sweetheart. I mean, sin. No law, no sin. Now, the Bible tells us in John chapter 1, verse 14, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus was full of grace and truth, but, and why was Jesus full of grace? If you and I had time, we would discover that grace is much more than just the unmerited favor of God. Grace is the power of God that enables you to conquer sin and be victorious in your life. But since we don't need to be victorious because there's no law, no law to break, so there's no sin, then we don't need what? Grace. Grace, you can turn around as well. Now, if we don't need grace, then we do not need the author of grace and that is Jesus Christ. So the very moment that we do away with God's infallible, eternal law is the very moment that we do away with who? Please don't turn around, Jesus, because we desperately need you. Why is it that we desperately need Jesus? Because we need His grace. Thank you, Grace. You can turn back around. To overcome what? Sin in our lives, which is defined by the Bible as transgression of the what? Of the law. Do you see how detrimental it is to this? You can, didn't they do a good job? No curtsies or bows or anything. 
Can you see how detrimental it is to the Christian experience to do away with God's infallible law? To do away with the law then is to do away with Jesus Christ himself. And there's not one person on the face of this planet that calls themselves a Christian that would say, let's do away with Jesus. Doesn't matter what denomination you study with, they will say that we need Jesus because we live in a world that is full of what? Well, what is sin? Transgression of the very law that they will say has been done away with. How many of you give Bible studies? How many of you give Bible studies? How many of you want to give Bible studies? How many of you have prayed for God to give you somebody to study with? You've got to pray for that. You pray for that and God will match you up with the perfect person to give Bible studies to and you won't have to get discouraged because God will have made that match. Isn't this cool? So pray for a Bible study and... Um, yeah, just pray for a Bible study. So, Matthew 5, 17 and 18, God's law will never change. It is an infallible law. Satan sought to set up one. Jesus comes to restore his law among his people. When Jesus was here, who kept the law better? The Pharisees or stricter? Who kept the law even more strict? The Pharisees or Jesus? They're like, bah! why are you asking me a trick question? I'm not asking a trick question. Who was more strict in his keeping of the law, the Pharisees or Jesus? Did the Pharisees sin? Okay, did Jesus sin? Who was more strict in the way that he kept the law? Jesus was. Now, if I said, who was faithful to the law, you would have answered, oh, yes, it was Jesus. Sometimes we think that strict obedience to the law of God is a bad thing. The motivation is what determines whether it's bad or not. God wants us to be motivated by what? By our love for Him. So, Jesus says the law is not going to change the Antichrist says the law is going to change. Jesus has an infallible law. Antichrist sought to set up an infallible law, and he failed. Hallelujah. Greece. Let's go to Greece. Greece had a multiplicity of gods. You remember when I was talking about Caesar Augustus, Caesar Augustus had overseen the construction of 53,000 miles of avenues that could lead to Rome where the, quote, Son of God lived, the, quote, Savior of the Roman world, the one that was heralded by a choir. He constructed all of these roads that led to Rome, thus giving the Romans multiple avenues for salvation and multiple avenues to get to God. Satan had worked to ensure there was a multiplicity of avenues to come to the Roman Empire, the false god that he had set up. He had constructed 53,000 miles of road, all of which are said to have led to Rome. God showed us that there's only one way to his eternal kingdom. Please turn with me to John chapter 14 and verse 6. John chapter 14, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John chapter 14 and verse 6. John chapter 14 and verse 6, and 6 is going to work for us. We'll start in verse 5. John chapter 14, verse 5, says this, quote, Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest. How can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the what? I am the way. I am the what? Truth, and I am the life, and no man cometh to the Father but by me. How many avenues has God set up for us to be saved? One. How many avenues did Caesar Augustus, the Roman God, set up for them to be saved? 53,000 miles worth. You choose the road you want to go on, you follow it, and eventually you'll end up in Rome where the Savior is anyway. This is what Satan set up, and Jesus comes and Jesus says, oh no, 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 no. I am the way I am the truth, and I am the life. In the language of uh, Scripture, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the Old Testament, the writings of Moses, were known as the way. There was no excuse whatsoever for the first century Galilean people those who were Jews by birth or had uh, allied themselves to the Jews, there was, there was no way that they could not have known the way. 
This is why Jesus would say, what is it, John chapter 5 and verse 39. Let's just double, double check that reference. John chapter 5, verse 39. Jesus says in John 5, 39, Search the Scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of who? Which testify of me. Jesus, go down to what he says now in verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father, he says. There is one that accuseth you, even Moses, in whom you trust, even in the way, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And then he says here, verse 46, For had you believed Moses, you would have what? You would have believed me? For he wrote of me. But if ye believe not his writings, how shall ye believe my words? Jesus Christ comes not as one of... He didn't come as the 53rd thousandth, 53rd comma zero zero oneth. I don't know how to say that. He didn't come as just another road that would lead to the Roman Empire. He came as the only road that would lead to the Father. His, his Father, our Father. Jesus thwarted the plan of Satan again. What do you say? Are you finding this interesting? Praise Jesus. That's what we want. We want you to be interested in the Bible. Go with me to Acts chapter 4 and verse 10. I got an itch on my knee. It just won't go away, so pray for my knee. It's itching. Acts chapter 4. Sister, Jesus, you can pray for anything, don't you know? All right, Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. Beginning in verse 10. The Bible says in Acts chapter 4, verse 10, Be it known unto you and unto all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. And verse 12, Neither is there salvation in any other name in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Whose name is the only name by which you and I can be saved? The name of Jesus Christ. It's not the, the next road that leads to God. Jesus is the only road that leads to God. Jesus, born into this world that thought they had a Savior, thought they had a Prince of Peace. Let's focus on that for just a second. The... Uh, the um, when the first century Galilean or the Roman world talked about Caesar Augustus, they would say, oh, this is the man who by war purchased peace for the Roman Empire. Thus, they heralded the emperor Caesar Augustus as the king of peace. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, we just finished the holiday season, which includes Christmas. Uh, Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, the ninth chapter. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. The Bible says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called what? Wonderful. What's the next name? Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting what? Father, the Prince of Peace. Who is it that came as the true Prince of Peace? Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ even thwarted that. He thwarted the uh, infallibility, infallible law. He thwarted forced obedience because he only accepts obedience that, is, that comes from love. And he thwarts there being a multiplicity of ways for you and I to be saved. There's only one, and that is through Jesus Christ himself. Now let's go to Rome. Rome is well known for the persecution of God's people. We discussed that yesterday in the persecution of John the Revelator. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 2 and verse 16. It's very interesting to me that Satan always works through an earthly entity to deceive people so that he can get worship. Satan always works through an earthly entity to deceive people so that he can then get worship. When Jesus is born, you're in Matthew chapter 2 and verse, what verse are we going to? 
16. Matthew chapter 2, I'm just catching up with you. In Matthew chapter 2, what is Matthew chapter 2 famous for? Verse 1. What's Matthew chapter 2 famous for? The what? Don't mumble, please. I can't hear. Verse 1. Okay, Matthew 2, verse 1 says, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. Matthew chapter 2 is about the birth of Christ. All right? It's about the birth of Christ. So when Jesus is born, Jesus is born here in Bethlehem. And of course the Magi, they come to see Jesus. And did you know that the Magi come almost two years after Jesus is born? Did you know that? How many of you did not know that? He's born almost two, he, the Magi or the wise men come almost two years. Because remember, the Magi followed Numbers chapter 23, I think it's verse 4, it may not be verse 4, but it is in Numbers 23. There's only one reference in the Old Testament that describes the Messiah coming as a star out of Jacob. Only one reference. And so it is when the, the angelic hosts just come out and start singing... That's interesting. They start singing about the birth of Jesus, and there's that great light in the sky. That's when the star appears. And so it's not until Jesus is born that the Magi begin going to where Jesus is. And the Bible says here in Matthew chapter 2, let's read in verse... Well, actually, let's go to verse 8. I want, to see, I want you to see this. Verse 8 says, And he, that would be Herod, sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young what? For the young child. Go and search diligent for, diligently for the young child. It doesn't say go and search for the baby. It says go and search for the young child. And when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. I don't know how much you know about Herod the Great, but this is not the least of his atrocities. It is Herod the Great, right? This is not the least of the atrocities that he committed in order to get the throne that he was on. Go to verse 15. And was there until the death of Herod, this is, uh, we'll go to 14. When he arose, he took the young mother young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt. Joseph takes his family into what? into Egypt, and then it says here, verse 15, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, out of Egypt have I called my son. That should flash back to the first class that we had here at GYC. Verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth, and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem, and in all the coasts thereof, from two years old and under. Why do you think he started from two years old? Because that was about the time that the star had appeared. Two years ago. About two years old, two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Pretty cool when you can see proof of things like that in the Bible, right? And so here are these wise men, by the way, these wise men staked their entire lives on one verse of Scripture. One verse. How much evidence will it take for you to stake your life on the Bible? How much evidence will it take? These wise men, very wealthy. The Bible doesn't tell us there were three. It tells us that there were three types of gifts that were given. These wise men travel across deserts to find the reason for that star. And of course, they are looking for the one that was born king of the Jews. And this is what upset Herod so much because he was so afraid of losing his throne because that's how he got his throne, by killing people and keeping his... He killed three of his sons, I think it was. He killed his favorite wife, Miriamne, I think was her name, just because he thought that they were trying to take his throne. So he just goes ahead and slays these babies two years old and under. He was a Roman emperor and a Roman king, and he is... Actually, he was a Jew, but he was working for the Roman government... And he kills the babies, trying to destroy Jesus. Then you have in Matthew chapter 14, 1 through 12, Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas, I, I've lost all of the connections. I knew them this morning, but they're, they're lost right now. Herod Antipas is related to Herod the Great. Herod Antipas is the one that married Herodias. 
I wish I could remember all those details because it's pretty cool. It's just like all in the family. I mean, this is a messed up crew of people. Herod Antipas is the one that calls for the beheading of John the Baptist because John the Baptist had stood firm and true for the Word of God. So it may not be like Daniel for us. It may not be like John the Revelator for us. I mean, you may get dipped in a boil of uh, a cauldron of boiling oil and you may be fried. It may not be like it was with John the Revelator or John the Baptist. Say again. That's why the, the three Hebrew worthies would say, if he doesn't save us from this fire, we will still serve him. And that too needs to be our attitude, doesn't it? And so you have uh, Herod Antipas slays John the Baptist. Herod Agrippa I takes the head of James. The emperor Domitian exiles John the Revelator to the Isle of Patmos. Jesus came to implement a benevolent rule of love rather than to enforce by tyranny His law on people. Everything that you and I are seeing that has happened in the Bible already is going to happen at the end of time. A law is going to be passed. It's going to be an infallible law, one that will not be changed. You and I will have to decide whether or not we are going to stay faithful to God even though we die. All of this is coming. All of these characteristics that Satan has set up, he set up because he is a lion walking about, roaring with just a little bit of time left. And he wants us. He doesn't care how he gets you. You know, there's only one way for God to get you, and that is for you to simply have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Satan, however, can get you in a multiplicity of ways. Multiplicity of ways not the least of which is entertainment. How many of you have been to that entertainment class while you were here? Anybody been to that class? Okay, you need to, uh, you need to get that off of gycweb.org whenever they put it up. Jesus Christ came to implement a benevolent rule of love. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. 1 John, not John, but 1 John chapter 3 and verse 16. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 16. 16. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. The Word of God says, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Why is it that you and I should lay down our lives for our brethren? Because Jesus Christ laid down His life for us. And dear heart, many of us think, yeah, I'd be willing to die for this person, I'd be willing to die for that person, but we're not willing to live and love them at this moment. Why would we die for them then? The Bible goes on to say, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7. 1 John chapter 4 verse 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. Verse 8 says, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is what? God is love. The Bible goes on to say, turn with me to, oh look, I've got 1 Corinthians 15, 57 twice, so we'll read it two times. 1 Corinthians 15, 57. You remember that there were multiple roads that would lead to Rome that would take you to the son of the divine, Caesar Augustus himself, and it was the first part of his name, Imperator, which all victories of the Roman world were declared victorious in. His name was the one that was used. Didn't matter who fought the battle, he got the credit. The Bible says here in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 57, But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. How is it that you and I are going to have victory in this world? Through Jesus Christ. I want you to real quick, turn with me to, uh, you're in 1 Corinthians here, let's go to 1 Corinthians, oh, is it 1531? Yes, 1531, hallelujah. 1 Corinthians 1531, the Word of God says, I protest by your rejoicing, Paul is speaking, I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die, what? How often did Paul die to himself? Now, it's very interesting that Paul says, I die daily. In order to tell somebody that you die daily, you must be what? 
alive or a liar. Right? I died daily, which means that yesterday, what did I do? I died. And the day before that, what did I do? Yet Paul is still alive, so how does this work? Go to Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Galatians, you're turning to the right, past 2 Corinthians, then you have the third of the cousins. You know, the, the Ians were all cousins. You have the first and second Corinthians, then you have Galatians, Philippians, Colossians. You have all of the cousins there in a row. And the Bible says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul's still speaking. He says in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. So what is Paul? He's dead. That's right. Good job. He's crucified. He's, he's dead with Christ. Nevertheless, I what? Paul is bipolar or schizophrenic. Or Paul is dead to himself and really alive with Christ in him. That's called the mystery of godliness. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The Bible goes on to say, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Whose faith is it that Paul lived by? The faith of the Son of God. He lived by Jesus' faith. He simply said, Jesus, I don't have enough faith. I have to live by your faith. Jesus had perfect faith, didn't he? All right, the Bible goes on to say then, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Rome would persecute you because you refuse to obey its dictates. You refuse to honor its law. You refuse to, to um, reject your own God and not choose one of their gods. And for that reason, Rome persecuted you. And Rome will persecute us again. It is no mystery. How many of you are Seventh-day Adventists? I don't know that I want to embarrass anybody. There may be some of us in here that are not Seventh-day Adventists, and so we haven't studied these prophecies over and over and over again. And there may be some of us in here that are Seventh-day Adventists that have never studied these prophecies over and over and over again. But at the end of time, there's going to be laws that are passed that force you to obey the dictates of a man that comes from a tradition of infallibility and you will be called to stand for what is right. Paul said, I don't care if I die, because I'm already dead. And the one that is alive in me is Jesus Christ himself. It's no wonder that when you go to a GYC event and you go to different classes and you have your Bible that sometimes we never touch at home, you have your Bible in your hand and you open the Bible and you begin to read it and you go home and you are absolutely, teetotally on fire for what you learned at GYC. You may not be able to remember a thing that you learned with the exception of that you went there with one attitude and you left and went home with a different attitude toward this book, toward what this book says, what this book calls us to do. You go home absolutely ecstatic and you're thinking to yourself, man, how can I keep this going? How can I keep this going? How can I keep this going? And, and this book just ends up back on the shelf and you're still thinking, how can I keep this going? How can I keep this going? How, what is it that I want to keep going? What happened at GYC? Why was it so fun there and not so fun when I got back home? The reason it was fun here, and I don't know what attitude you came to GYC with. There are lots of people that tell me in their testimonies that they came to GYC not wanting to be here, but because some other church member dragged them here. And now Loami Richardson is giving a testimony on the platform at GYC. I mean, get real. That's because this book called the Bible, all we've been doing is sharing very interesting things from the Bible with you. How many of you have ever heard, I'd like to share some interesting things with you. First, I'd like to finish my other thought. <laughs> That's what I need to do. How many of you want to leave GYC just as, and, and be just as on fire six months from now as you are at this moment? You want to be absolutely on fire. Don't forget how easy it was for you to get on fire. You may have come here on fire. Maybe you're even more fired up now than you were when you got here. But all you have done here at GYC is study this book. That's all you've done. 
You and I will never have a victorious Christian experience apart from reading this book. And again, it doesn't matter if you can remember what you read. Just read it every day and it will make a change in your life. I tell the students that come to life and the other places that I have taught that if you want to maintain a, a, an incredible relationship with Jesus, all you have to do is give one Bible study a week. Not Sabbath school class, not Pathfinders, not a devotional for the, uh, for the church board meeting. One real, authentic, not a Seventh-day, even, it may even be a backslidden Seventh-day Adventist. That would work. But somebody that really doesn't know the truth as it is taught by the Seventh-day Adventist church, you find one of those people and you give them one Bible study a week. And I don't care if you read through an Amazing Facts Bible study guide which is as old as the hills of Gilboa. All you have to do is have one Bible study a week and those people will ask you questions and you won't be able to answer those questions. And if they ask you questions that you can't answer, don't make it up. Just say, I don't know, but I'll study it, you study it, and next week we'll talk about it together. And those people are like, oh, there's a next week to this. Some people don't realize that, right? Whatever you do, find a Bible, somebody to give the Bible studies to when you get home. Find somebody. I was uh, talking to an individual the other day, and they were asking me about evangelism. I think I shared this with you already. They were asking about evangelism and what I would do in order to, to get churches fired up before you hold an evangelistic meeting. And I said, you know, this is all I know. This is all I study. So when I'm going to get somebody fired up about the Bible and evangelism, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to study the Bible with him. So right now, I'm going to share some things with you. Maybe you've heard them. Maybe you have not. have just a couple of minutes here. Maybe you've heard them. Maybe you have not. I'm going to share with you things that will get you as a Seventh-day Adventist excited about the Bible. By the way, how many of you have been Adventists for more than five years? Anyone here been Adventists for more than five years? All right, uh, more than 10 years. More than 10 years. 20? 30? 40? 50? Oh, you ain't 50 years old, bro. Your grandpa may be 50, but you ain't 50. Have you ever heard it said that Adam and Eve were clothed with a garment of light? Can you prove that from the Bible? Okay. All right. Did you know that you can prove this from the Bible? Adam and Eve were clothed with a garment of light. Do you want to see that? All right, I'll show it to you. Um, how many of you knew that in Daniel chapter 2, you see the, the, uh, the allowance for the millennium? You can actually find the gap for the millennium in Daniel chapter 2. Did anybody know this? Would you like to see it? We'll show you. Have you ever heard that at the end of time, flesh food will be unfit for human consumption? Have you ever heard that? Where does that come from? That comes from the testimony of Jesus, doesn't it? It comes from the testimony of Jesus. I heard somebody say Ellen White, and praise the Lord, I love this lady just as much as most any of you in this room do, but I never say Ellen White said. I always say the testimony of Jesus says. And I say it that way because I don't want people to reject what is being said. If I say the spirit of prophecy said, all those of us that are kids of the baby boomers are going to say, oh great, here goes another spirit of prophecy quote. Depending on our attitude toward this, the spirit of prophecy. If you say Ellen White said, some people are going to say, oh, that old dead lady, what in the world? But if you say, the testimony of Jesus says... No Christian in their right mind would reject the testimony of Jesus. Quite interesting. So we will show you where, how you can know that uh, at the end of time, flesh food will be unfit for human consumption. And I have to make sure I don't make too many promises with a little bit of time that we have left. Uh, so we will go with those three, and if we have more time, then we'll do a fourth one that's very cool. Well, the fourth one would be, did you know that God the Father is coming at the second coming with Jesus? He is, and it's in the Bible. Powerful. And it has nothing to do with Revelation chapter 8, verse 1. We'll show you in other places. Some of you are thinking, oh, Revelation 8, 1. Who was thinking that? Okay, well, then it could have something to do with Revelation 8, 1. Okay, so the first promise that we were going to look at is what? Adam and Eve were clothed with what? 
a garment of light. Now, the reason that I'm doing this at the tail end of this study, this was cool stuff, and I like stuff like this. Dear heart, you are going to go back home to a world full, a church full of Adventists, many of whom are bored with the Bible. So you just have to take what we've always known as truth and dig a little deeper so that you can find a nugget that will get people energized about the Bible. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, And God said, who is speaking here? God is speaking, and God said, Let us make man in our what? In our image, after our what? After our likeness. And then he gives them dominion. So God says, let us make man in our image. Now, in order to know what image Adam and Eve were made in, you and I, or what they were clothed with, you and I simply have to ask ourselves the question, what is God clothed with? Because Adam and Eve were made in the likeness of God, and they were made uh, in the image of God. So if we find out what God is clothed with, we can know for certain then what Adam and Eve were clothed with. Does that make sense? The testimony of Jesus would say that Adam and Eve lost their garment of light when they sinned. That was a symbol of the righteousness that God had given to them. You're going with me to the 104th Psalm. Psalm 104. Psalm 104 and verse 1. Psalm 104 verse 1. The Word of God says in Psalm 104 verse 1, Bless the Lord, O my soul. I always thought it was weird. I, I heard this preacher preaching once and he was like, Lord, we want to bless you. We want to bless you, Lord. We want to just bless you, bless you. And I was like, man, that's a little weird. But the Bible says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless the, bless the Lord. O Lord my God, thou art very great. Thou art clothed with honor and majesty. What were Adam and Eve then clothed? with at the Garden of Eden. They're clothed with honor and with majesty. Did you know that Adam was crowned king in the Garden of Eden? He was crowned king of this earth? Quite interesting. That's a deep study in and of itself. Go down to verse 3. Who layeth the beams of his chambers in the... Oh, I'm sorry, verse 2. Who coverest thyself with light as with a what? As with a garment. So God is clothed with what? Light as with a what? So what is the garment as clothing that God wears? Light. And so over here, when Adam and Eve are created, what's the clothing that they have on? A garment of light. That is the symbol of the righteousness that they had. Now, it, it, it is interesting that Adam and Eve over here in their purity were naked and not ashamed, and then, but they are clothed with a garment of light, right? And then over here they're naked and they are ashamed, but they don't have the garment of light. And then God covers them with a robe of skin. Quite interesting. What did you think of that, sister? It's cool. So you can go home and you can share with somebody. I can prove to you from the Bible that Adam and Eve were clothed with a garment of light. And they'd be like, really? And then they're going to get excited about studying the what? About studying the Bible. Was that neat? You want to see another neat one? What was the second one we were going to do? I was depending on you to help me remember. What was it? Yes, the thousand year period in Daniel chapter 2. So let's go to Daniel chapter 2. You're turning to the right from the book of Psalms. Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 34. Daniel chapter 2, verse 34. How many of you are uh, familiar with Daniel chapter 2? You've got the image, head of gold, chest and arms of what? Silver, belly, thighs of? Brass or bronze, legs of? Feet of? Okay, and the feet that were of iron and clay represented what? The ten divisions of the Roman Empire. Yes? Ten divisions of the Roman Empire, which are, of course, ten kings. And then here you are, Daniel chapter 2, verse 34. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and brake them to pieces. What is broken to pieces in Daniel chapter 2, verse 34? The what? Okay, the kingdoms of the world, but more specifically, the feet and the toes that were part of what? Part of iron and part of clay, which is the, the divided Roman Empire. 
So during the time of the divided Roman Empire, there's going to be this stone that is cut out without hands that smashes the divided Roman Empire. Now look what it says in verse 35. Then. So you have this occurrence where the stone smashes the image on the feet. And then it says this. Then it was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces. How? together. At what point is it in the future, at what point is it that all the kingdoms of this world are gathered together for one great battle and then they are all completely destroyed at the same time? That is at the end of the millennium. So Daniel chapter 2 verse 34 describes the second coming of Jesus. Daniel chapter 2 verse 35 describes what happens at the end of the millennium. Isn't that cool? Over here, it's just the, the toes and the feet that are smashed. And then in 35, you have all of them together that are smashed. And then God sets up his kingdom and it, it uh, encompasses this entire world. The thousand year period in Daniel chapter 2. Pretty cool. What's the third thing we were going to look at? The what? Oh yes, the flesh. The flesh. You know, I've been, I've been thinking lots about this. The Bible, the, the Bible, it has been said that at the end of time, flesh food will be unfit for human consumption. We, we are aware of that. And uh, if something is unfit for human consumption, we should not what? We should not consume it. However, there are many days that you and I consume things that are not fit for human consumption, but we're not going to get that technical this morning. All right, turn with me to the book of Hosea. Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. And we are going to Hosea, the fourth chapter. Hosea chapter four. When this was shared with me, I thought to myself, no way. You know, when Jesus was resurrected, Jesus goes to the disciples and Jesus uh, appears to them in the upper room and he asks, or he, they give him a piece of what? A piece of fish and what? And honeycomb, yeah? You remember this? Fish and honeycomb. And he eats it. And so for years, people would say, you have to be a vegetarian. I said, come on, Jesus ate fish after he was resurrected. That's what I would say all the time until I went to the Florida Youth Initiative in 2009. Dwayne Lemon was speaking. And uh, this brother knows, this brother knows his Bible. And he was talking about things that were neat from Scripture and health. And by the way, he will be at Florida Youth Initiative this June. Uh, it's the 11th through the 15th. It's advertised in your bulletin there that you got when you registered. And so that's happening up at our church in Lady Lake, Florida in 2014, of course. Hosea chapter 4 and verse 1. Hosea chapter 4 verse 1 says this. Hear ye the word of the Lord, ye children of Israel. For the Lord hath a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. Whenever you read in Scripture that the Lord has a controversy with the nations or a controversy with the inhabitants of the land, there is, yes, a primary application for that specific time, but there is also a secondary application that, that uh, leads us into the end of time, takes us to the end of time. So here the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land and just notice the characteristics of those that are in this land it says because there is no what truth John 17 17 says sanctify them by thy truth thy word is truth so God's word is not being shared because there's no truth there's no mercy who is it that is the merciful one every morning Lamentations chapter 3 I believe it's 21 through 23 it says every morning his mercies are new and by the way where is it that the Shekinah glory sat in the Old Testament sanctuary it sat on the mercy seat he's the merciful one there's no truth nor mercy nor knowledge of God in the land verse 2 for by swearing and lying and killing and stealing they break out and blood touches blood that means there's so many, so many people being killed there, it's just ridiculous. What does that sound like? CNN.com. Fox News. CNN. That's what it sounds like. 
You just look on there and you see all of these things happening. Verse 3 says, Therefore, for this reason, because there's all of this sin in the world, this is at the end of time when the Lord has a controversy with the nations. Therefore, and we talked yesterday, when you see the word therefore, you have to see what is this word therefore. Therefore shall the land mourn. So the land is mourning. And everyone that dwelleth therein shall languish. That word languish means to be sick. So everyone that dwells on the land that is mourning shall be sick. And then it goes on to say, with the beasts of the field. So what else will be sick? The beasts of the field. And with the fowls of heaven, what else will be sick? The fowls of heaven. Yea, the fishes of the sea also shall be taken away. Why is it that the fish are not fit for human consumption at the end of time? Because of the sin that is in this world. The Bible says, for because of those characteristics, the people will be mourning, the land shall be sick, the beasts of the field will be sick, the fowls of the heavens will be sick, and the fish are going to be sick. So at the end of time, flesh food will be unfit for what? Human consumption. There you have the biblical evidence for it. I am a firm believer that everything that the testimony of Jesus says, if you search hard enough, you will find it in this book. And when you find it in this book, and you share with people truth out of this book, and, and sure, they'll know about Ellen G. White and the gift that God gave to this woman to our church, the remnant church of Bible prophecy. They'll know about her, but they will know about her first because of what this book said, not because you just quoted from one of her books. My church members have no idea. I quote from her books all the time. What was the last one I was going to share with you? We are out of time. You want me to tell you anyway? All right, go to Matthew 26, 64. It doesn't take much convincing, does it? Matthew 26, 64. Matthew 26. When Jesus ascended to heaven, whose right hand did he ascend to? Are you sure? Yes, you are sure. That's right. He went to the right hand of the Father. Here you are in Matthew chapter 26, verse 64. Jesus is talking to Caiaphas, the high priest, and those others at his trial. And Jesus says to them in Matthew 26, 64, Thou hast said, Nevertheless I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Whose right hand does Jesus sit on? The fathers. In this verse, Jesus calls him power. You will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. When Jesus comes back, he's coming back with himself. The Bible says in Matthew 24 and 25 that he's coming back with all of the angels. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit has already been sent to this earth, so the Holy Spirit will be here. The Bible tells us in uh, Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, that there are beasts in heaven that cry out day and night all the time, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And then you look at Revelation chapter 8, verse 1, it says, And when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for the space of half an hour. How can beings that are always in the presence of God, always saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come, how can those beasts stop saying that? They don't stop saying it. They're just where he is. And he's not in heaven for a period of half an hour. Prophetically, that's seven and a half days. Have you ever heard that we will be seven days ascending to New Jerusalem? I've got this theory that it's going to take God and all of his retinue of angels half an hour or half a day to get here. And then he's going to take us on this tour of the worlds he created for seven days. And then you and I will celebrate the Sabbath in heaven, the very first day we get there. Celebrate it with God. And there'll be a communion service that day because Jesus hasn't drank grape juice since he left. And he is looking forward to drinking that juice new with you in his kingdom. Don't you want to be there? You take the, the government that was set up by the Roman Empire and Jesus thwarts every bit of it. And in our next session, which is tomorrow, what time is our session tomorrow? Tomorrow morning, right? No, tomorrow afternoon. Our session tomorrow afternoon is going to be completely about a relationship with Jesus, how Jesus thwarted the plan of Satan, and then how do I maintain this relationship with Him? Many of you have been asking us questions about um, how do I study the Bible? 
how do I continue to stay on fire? I shared a tad bit with you today about how to stay on fire, and it's just as simple as giving one Bible study a week. How many of you would like to make a covenant with the Lord Jesus that within a two-week time period, you will find somebody to study the Bible with? You're making a covenant with the Lord. Just somebody to study the Bible with. Yeah? You would like to? Okay, let me rephrase the, the appeal. How many of you would like to make a covenant with God that within a two-week period you're going to find somebody to study the Bible with? Oh, the more hands went up. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 8, 12, that if there first be a willing mind, it is accepted of God like you have already done it. So because you have a willing heart, God accepts it as if you have already done it. But that doesn't mean we can procrastinate. Have you enjoyed this presentation? Praise the Lord. You looking forward to outreach? Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the gift that you have given to us in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we ask that when all of this shakes down at the end of time, that, you will not, that we will not be able to be shaken out of the truth that we will find ourselves so closely allied to Jesus, so dead to self and full of Christ, that we will stand up amidst the most fierce persecution. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. You saw our hands raised. Your recording angel marked it in the books of record that we're going to, it's our heart's desire to start giving Bible studies within two weeks. In your name we pray, amen. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, please visit us online at www.gycweb.org.